You're listening to Reformed University Fellowship at the University of Kentucky. Here at RUF, we believe that you are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace, and you are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. For more information, check us out at ruf.org backslash UK or on Instagram at UKRUF. Thanks so much for listening. We are going to continue our series tonight uh, in the Gospel of Luke, and we're coming to a passage where uh, Jesus's identity is proclaimed, and uh, it, it's proclaimed alongside his glory. Like, if there's ever a passage uh, that describes Jesus's glory, this is it. I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word glory. Um, probably a lot. Maybe it's, I think in college, a lot of times people refer to college as like the glory days. You've gotten here at a weird time, and that you're not here during the glory days of UK basketball. Maybe this, maybe that could change. But last season was certainly not the glory days. Uh, you know, people might point back to like, you know, the, the, typically glory days and glory have a connotation of like when things were good and when things were successful. And, and here you have Jesus being pronounced uh, as glorious. Uh, and yet... Uh, his identity, who he's proclaimed to be, is also going to rub up a little bit, a little bit against uh, our notions of what glory is. And, and so we're going to look at, at three things tonight that kind of help explain uh, Jesus' glory and, and what that even means for us. And so we're going to look at uh, the meaning of his identity. Uh, we're going to look at the reality of his call uh, to his people. And then lastly, the motivation uh, for service for his people. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Father, thank you for tonight. Uh, Lord, we do thank you for uh, just a couple of days off um, for fall break, but we're also glad uh, to be back. And I'm glad to see these folks here. And so, Lord, we ask tonight that you would bless our time. Uh, As we look at your word, Lord, we we pray that uh, this merely wouldn't be uh, some sort of uh, academic exercise, uh, but Lord, that you would actually meet us uh, as we look at your word and that you would mold us and shape us uh, more and more into the image of your son, Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Uh, some of you have heard me share this story before, but during my first year of marriage, Ann and I attended a wedding and uh, we'd gotten into this habit of scaring each other and uh, I don't know why. We just, it was first few months of marriage, you know, kind of just being cute. And uh, anyway, we go to this wedding and it was at like this house and we were, we were all sitting outside the house and I went in to go use the restroom. There was one that was me- like meant for the guests. It was kind of on the outside and uh, it was full. So uh, I had to go like inside the house. Well, Anne comes up uh, like a minute after me, thinks I'm in that bathroom and waits outside of it and thinks, oh, I'm going to scare Sam when he comes out. Well, uh, and did scare the person that came out of that door, but it was not me. Uh, it was, it happened to be the, the groomsman that she was actually like walking with down the aisle that she didn't really know that well. And of course he, he screams and immediately he's like, what are you doing? And she was like, ah, oh, you know, you can't really explain like why you're screaming at someone as they walk out of the door. Um, but I, I say that say Anne would not have related to that person, uh, in such a way had she known who it was like, obviously she doesn't, well, 
maybe you don't know that about Anne, but Anne does not normally, you know, hide outside bathrooms and scare people as, as they walk in. Um, some of you might do that, uh, but she does not. And I should say, this is, this is kind of a roundabout way of saying, because we're in chapter nine of the Gospel of Luke. This doesn't seem like the natural time for Jesus to remind people who he is, especially his disciples, but he does that precisely here. And in this passage, he's reminding his disciples, he's reminding you of who he is because that shapes the way we relate to him. Uh, What we know about someone and and who they are shapes the way we relate to them. And and so tonight, in the passage Colin just read for us, uh, Jesus tells uh, the people, he asks the question, because we, we mentioned this last week, but by now, word is getting out about Jesus. Uh, we read last week, crowds were swarming around him. And here he asks the question, verses 18 and 19. He says, you know, who do the crowds say that I am? Uh, who, who do you say that I am? And, you know, so they're saying, well, you know, some say Elijah. Some, some say John the Baptist. Um, and then he says, you know, who do you say I am? And, and Peter, and, and Peter's one of the disciples. And if you, if you want a, a good comparison to Peter, if there's someone in your class that is like the first person to answer every question in class, among the disciples, that's, that's, peace, that's Peter's closest counterpart. Like, he is just, he's always quick to talk. Right off the bat, he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ of God. Um, to be honest, growing up, um, I became a Christian in college, but I was like, I, I, I'd heard of Jesus. I'd, I'd been around the church some. Uh, I always assumed Christ was Jesus' last name. Um, turns out that's not true. Uh, Christ is not his last name. That's his title. Uh, what Peter says here, when he says, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ of God. Uh, it's a word that literally means anointed. Uh, some of you may have heard of Jesus referred to as the Messiah. Uh, that's just the Hebrew word for the same word. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. He's the anointed one. We don't do a whole lot of anointing in our culture these days. Really, the only anointing we probably see uh, will be when like, the queen finally passes away and there's a new royal throne in England. Uh, it won't be a new royal throne, but there'll be a new person on the throne. Uh, that, that person will be anointed. But other than that, we don't do a whole lot of anointing um, in 2021. But throughout Mideast culture, throughout ancient Near East culture, in scripture, anointing was common. And, and there was, especially among three different offices. Typically, kings were anointed, uh, in the Old Testament, there were, men, there were men and women called prophets. They were anointed. Uh, and there were priests, p- people who would sacrifice and pray on behalf of the people. All of these people were anointed. Uh, but as you read the Old Testament, there was always this hint that one day, someday, there would be a better priest. Uh, there talks about one coming out, of, coming out like Moses. Uh, that there would be a better king uh, if you read Micah 5, 2, it says, well, one day there'll be a king like David and his throne shall never end. Um, there was always this indication that, that there would be one who would come, that there would finally be not just a succession of priests, not just a succession of kings, but one day there would be a king greater than all the other kings, a priest better than all the priests. And what Peter is saying is that that's who Jesus is. You are the anointed of God. You are the one who is going to come and rescue his people. You are going to be the one who makes everything right. 
Jesus is the one God has sent the Savior. And so Peter says this, and then you see God saying the same thing. You'll notice uh, if you go down the passage a little bit to verses 34 and 35, um, you hear this voice from a cloud saying, this is my son, listen to him. If you read the Old Testament, one of the common ways God shows up is in a cloud. You, you read about it in Exodus 13, Exodus 19, uh, when God gives the Ten Commandments, when he leads the people out of Israel, when he fills the tabernacle in Exodus 40, uh, he shows up in the form of a cloud, and he does so here. And what does he say about Jesus? He says, this is my son, listen to him. He is the Christ of God. He is the anointed. Okay, Jesus seems to be at great pains to make this point. And, and this is not, this, it's not like he's just introducing himself to the disciples. They know him. So what's the big deal? Why is it important that the disciples should know this? Why is it important that we should know this, that, that Jesus is the Messiah? Uh, he is the Christ. He is the, he is the one set aside by God to deliver his people, to, to set the world's wrongs and make them right. Why do we need to know that? The reason is, is that we are so prone to turn Jesus into something else. And the disciples would, would do the same thing. You know, it's interesting. Peter says, you know, he's like, he notices that Moses and Elijah are there and Jesus is there. And he's like, hey, we've got these three great Old Testament figures. Let's just set up a tent. You know, it's kind of this random thing. And, and the voice from heaven says, no, no, no. This is my son. He's different from them. He's greater than them. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another king. This is my son. And we need to be reminded this is who Jesus is because we'll be confronted with the idea. Maybe it's the idea we think in ourselves uh, or we hear it that, that Jesus is maybe just, you know, we don't know much about Jesus. Maybe you believe the Bible, maybe you don't. But Jesus was a great, we can take him as a great teacher. But surely he's not like the savior. Like you don't need to trust him. Maybe we've heard that. Or, um, you know what? Jesus did a lot of great things. He's a great example. Uh, he was obviously really kind to people. You know, love one another as I loved you. That's a great, I mean, that's a great moral example to live by. And here in this passage, God is saying, no, 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 no. He is much more than that. He is the savior. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, um, you can think a lot of those things about Jesus. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone here from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, which is this. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg. That'd be pretty loony, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must either make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as, as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see what C.S. Lewis is getting at? Like, great moral teachers don't come around and say, I am the son of God. You know, Jesus was saying in, in, in John, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like, 
great moral teachers don't say that. Like what he's saying is like, you're either, he's either crazy or he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, he's inviting us to come and worship him. And so what Peter says is true. Jesus affirms what Peter says. Indeed, he'll say, yes, I am the son of man. But, but, but as Jesus responds to him, what, what he'll say to Peter is, and, and what he'll make Peter and us realize pretty quickly is that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. Uh, but that title is going to look a little bit different than we want it to look. Uh, it's not going to look the way the disciples hoped it would look. Um, he is the Messiah, but that may not mean what they think it means because what it means is that he has come to die for his people. And so that's what I want to look at. I, I want to look at, at, at the call he gives to his followers. Um, there was a time, this was probably 10, 15 years ago, where like hidden camera prank TV shows were like all the rage. Um, and I remember this one, and I, and I, could, I can't remember what, what show it was, uh, but they did this thing where they, they went into this breakfast restaurant and they acted like certain people won this huge prize. And it was like, uh, congratulations. They had like all this confetti and the people were like, oh my gosh, like what do we win? And like the prize they gave the people was like, instead, like we are gonna give you all, all the omelet supplies, all the pancake supplies you need. And we've got this like um, cool, almost like a hibachi grill type thing. And like, we're gonna set it up and like you get to do it. Like you get to do it yourself. Like you get to make yourself breakfast. And like the varying reactions were obviously, it was, there was a range of reactions. Like little kids that came in thought this was the greatest thing. And you had like some other couples who were like, you know, if I wanted to make my breakfast, I wouldn't have come to a restaurant. You know, uh, like you don't win a sweepstakes at a restaurant and then have to make your own meal. Like that just doesn't make sense. You, you don't win the prize. You don't win, you don't get all this confetti, get announced as the winner and then have to make your own breakfast. And for the disciples listening to what Jesus is saying, what he says must have shocked them. Because right after Peter says, you are the Christ of God, what does he say? He says, the son of man will come and be rejected. He will suffer and die and be raised on the third day. So, so there's like this moment of crescendo where like, okay, who do they say that I am? Like, well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist. And then finally, Peter's like, you are the Christ, the son of God. You are the anointed. You are the one who's gonna rescue us. And then immediately Jesus says, yes. And I'm gonna suffer and I'm gonna die and I'm gonna be rejected. Like for the disciples, the, those two things couldn't go together in their minds. To be the anointed deliverer meant that you were gonna win. Like you're not gonna have to suffer as well. It, was, it would have been really hard for them to reconcile those two things in their mind. And yet, that is who Jesus is saying he is. And that's what he's calling us to do. And, and, and Jesus is reminding us again of who he is, because I think some of us struggle with this. Uh, maybe you're on the outside of Christianity looking in, and you're considering Jesus and what it might look like to follow him. Or maybe you've trusted uh, Jesus, but, but you've wondered... Um, okay, I, I came to Jesus like for forgiveness uh, and, and for reconciliation and, and for hope. Um, and those promises are still true. 
Jesus says all, all of those are still true. All those promises are true in Christ. However, what he's saying is that what it looks like to follow him means that you are following a savior that has been rejected. And so following him, he says, looks like denying yourself daily, taking up our cross and following him. Jesus is inviting us to a life of self-denial. And, and so if you're here tonight uh, and, and you call yourself a Christian, let me ask you, let me, we need to ask ourselves this question. Have you ever said no to something because of out of gratitude to Jesus? Have you ever denied yourself something because of what Jesus has done for you? Because of Jesus' care for you? There will be situations we face where, where because of what Jesus has done, he's calling us to deny it, to, to deny ourselves, to follow him. Where we, where we can say, look, you know what? I know, I know I want to look at that website, but you know what? Because I'm trying to follow Jesus, I'm not going to do that. Um, I kind of want to participate in that conversation. Um, but you know what? Because I'm trying to follow Jesus, I don't think that's the wise thing for me to do. Um, I know you've invited me up to your room, but I don't think that's the wise thing for me to do because I'm trying to follow Jesus. Why? Why does, why does following Jesus mean a life of self-denial? Well, for one, that was Jesus' life. If you read Philippians 2, Paul gives one of the greatest descriptions of what Jesus did. Jesus left perfect communion with the Father and gave it up and faced a life of rejection. He left perfect communion, faced a life of rejection. He left riches and was treated as poor, lived a life of poverty. Uh, he gave up the glory of heaven to dwell on an earth that is broken, where people would mock him and spit upon him. Um, Jesus has come as a savior denying himself and he invites us to do the same thing. And look, that in so, in, in so many ways is countercultural, but I want to tell you that is also such a beautiful invitation. Think about this. Think about all the conflict in the world and how much of it is rooted in not denying ourselves. Or to put it another way, think about all the conflict in the world and think about how much of it is rooted in just our desire to serve our own needs. Think about how many wars are going on or have gone on based on the idea of, okay, I want what's best for my country, therefore I'm gonna take over this territory. Um, think about how many marriages have fallen apart because one or the other has given up on the idea of serving and has kind of thrown in the towel and said, I want what I want even if that costs me this marriage. Uh, think about how some of you have been hurt in friendships because you, you've, have, you've had someone that you care about, that you count as a friend, uh, who's, who's not considered you a friend. You've been the victim of them serving their own needs and leaving you in the dust. On the flip side, we all know how you can be hurt 
by selfish acts, whether it's the selfish acts of others or our own selfish acts. But on the flip side, how beautiful is it when people sacrifice for one another? How beautiful is it when people give up their resources to help those who don't have resources? I remember in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, this is yeah, crazy how long ago it's been, um, like 16 years. And in the wake of that, there was all these amazing stories of like, because I mean, hundreds of thousands of people left New Orleans and Louisiana and Mississippi and had to move all across the country. And for some families, that was easier than others. Uh, but there was a story I remember reading about Ephraim Fields. Ephraim Fields and his wife faced a unique challenge because they had seven children. And it's not easy to relocate a family of nine. And so they, they put their name into kind of like this, it was kind of like a lottery. Uh, and it was this program called Open Your Home. And, and families who needed help would put their name in and they would hopefully be matched. And he put his name in thinking, we're going to get split up. That there's no way a family is going like, to be able to host us. Well, they got an email one day saying you've been matched with a family in Boston. And it turns out one of the pitchers for the Red Sox, uh, Kurt Schilling, who had lots of money and lots of houses, uh, reached out and said, hey, you're going to come live in my house for a year. Like, he didn't have to do that. He didn't have to take the time to, like, go to this website. He didn't have to take time to give up a, a house uh, and to invite these people that he does not know into his home and to provide for them. But, like, we love seeing stories when people give up their resources to help those who don't have resources. On a smaller but no less significant note, how great is it when someone takes the time to help you? Like, maybe it's with an assignment or, or, or with a problem um, or with something you don't understand in school. And like, they don't have to do that, but they took time out of their day to help you. Or, or maybe it's like that. Maybe they just took time out of their day just to listen to you. They grabbed lunch with you uh, and they just sat with you and asked you questions and, and listened to how your week and how your day was going. Look, the, the, the life Jesus is calling us to, say, it, it goes against our grain in so many ways, but what I want to suggest to you tonight is that it's what we're made for. Look, it's one of the reasons each year we do a mission trip. I don't do a mission trip to say like, okay, we need to get out of Lexington because that's the only place we can do missions. But what a, it's a great opportunity to get out of the school mode for one week and to rediscover what Jesus is talking about here. And, and some of you have had the opportunity whether it's to go on a mission trip or do a service project. I mean, not many of you, you know, there's not many days where we wake up and think, you know what? I want to give up my whole day and like do a construction project that I'm not really that gifted at or rake a bunch of leaves or go to this after school. Like, that we, oftentimes we don't wake up thinking, that's what I want to do right now. I'm going to spend all my time and give it to someone else and not really get much out of it. And yet, I'm going to guess that if some of you have done that, whether it's been a whole day or a whole week, this has been my experience every single time. We take a trip like that, and at the end of the week, people don't really want to leave. Like, they want to stay. You know, whether that's a service day in Lexington or whether you go to somewhere like Yakima, Washington, or St. Louis. Like, I've seen this over and over again. Why? Because where you've been created in the image of a God who delights in serving. And so we don't find, our, as Jesus says in this passage, we don't find our life in living for ourselves. We find our life actually in giving up our lives. That's how you find life. 
Because here's the reality. And, and this is the other reason we're, we're called to, to, to trust Jesus in sacrificing for ourselves is that when we make our life about us, it doesn't work. This is what he's getting at in verses 24. He says, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But lose it for me and you'll save it. Uh, the word life here is, is, is the Greek word psyche, which refers to kind of your, your inner life, your personal psychology, kind of the foundation of, of your being. And what Jesus is saying is, if you make your life about you, it will inevitably crumble. The ordinary ways in which we find life and meaning and significance, he's saying ultimately are not gonna work. If you want to find ultimate and lasting significance, we have to relocate our identity out of ourselves and into him. Out of our resume and into him. Because we'll be tempted, you're in college. It's tempting to find your identity, to locate your worth in whatever. Uh, your job, uh, your amassed wealth by the age of 40. Um, maybe the family that you hope to have in five to seven years, the spouse you hope to have in five to seven years, the career you hope to have in five to seven years, whatever. We can be tempted to locate it in those things. And what Jesus is reminding us here is that all of those things will fade. If we make life about those things serving us, all of those things will disappear. Our belongings will go away. The people we love will die. And so he invites us to find our life and to find our identity in something that will not go away and will not die. Jesus is the only safe place to build your identity. Jesus is the only safe place to find your worth, to find your significance in him. Look, we are bombarded with the opposite message. And, and I'm not saying, what Jesus is not saying is you don't need to care about yourself. Jesus is not saying like, you just need to like not eat for the rest of your life and not take care of yourself. He's not saying that. But Jesus is saying we do need to have other concerns other than ourselves. Because we're in a culture that's, that's telling us on every corner, uh, you need to live for yourself, for what you can do. Your life, your best life, now. You can, you can have these things now. And not only that, you get to decide what is right. You get to decide what is true and good. Look, we've been bombarded with these messages for a long time, and it's no surprise that we live now in the most anxious country in the world, in the history of the world. There has not been a more anxious generation than there is right now. Why is that? This experiment is not working. The whole idea of, of, of that I can make everything about me is not working. The, the whole notion that I can find truths myself, that's a whole lot of pressure. <laughs> to say that I can figure things out on my own, that, that I can come up with truth, uh, deep down we know that we can't. And so of course we're gonna be anxious. Of course we're gonna be scared. Jesus is inviting you into something that is much more stable and much more safe. He's asking you to give up your life and to follow him and to trust him and to bless others. 
And in that, we actually find our lives. In giving up our lives, we actually find true life. He's calling us to something so much greater. Um, And look, on an anecdotal level, I think I found this to be true. I was reading this passage today and I was thinking, you know what? The most joyful people I've met on this planet are the most selfless people I know. And the converse is true as well. Oftentimes, the most miserable and bitter people I know are the people who are most consumed with themselves. Jesus is inviting us into something so much better. Yes, it's countercultural. Yes, it'll feel like rubbing up against sandpaper. But in the end, it is for our good. Why would you do such a thing? You might be thinking here, self-denial, serving others. Uh, Why? Why would I do that? Look at this passage. Something unusual happens when you close this last section of this passage uh, from about verse 29 through 36. Um, The cloud image throughout the Old Testament, whenever that showed up, uh, especially in passages like Exodus 19, when the Israelites see God in the cloud, it's not like this warm, fuzzy, like, oh my gosh, there's God, like, he's in a cloud. That's, it, they are terrified. They see God in the cloud, and they ask Moses, please don't do that again. Do not let God get, us, get that close again. God here shows up on the cloud, in the cloud, on the mountain, and in verse 34, it says Peter and James and John are scared. They're really scared, and yet something unusual ha- happens. The cloud doesn't consume them. Why is that? It's because of something that Jesus talks about with Moses and Elijah in verse 31. It's interesting. On top of the mountain, it says Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about something. What were they talking about? They were talking about his, I think it says on the paper, his departure. It's literally the Greek word for exodus. You see, in the Old Testament, Moses led the Israelite people out of Egypt. It was called the exodus. He led them out of political, physical, economic slavery. He delivered them. And what Jesus is talking about here is an even greater deliverance. Whereas Moses delivered his people out of actual physical slavery, Jesus is coming to die for the sins of his people and to deliver us from slavery, to deliver us from the effects of our sin, from the punishment of our sin, And he's come to do that for you and for me. That's the reason the cloud does not consume those people on the mountain because on the cross, Jesus will receive that punishment. Jesus will be consumed for our sins. He is the one that suffers the punishment for our sin. He's the one that suffers the effects of that gap between God's righteousness and us. He came and gave up riches that we might have communion with God. That is the essence of glory. And that's what Jesus invites us to follow him in. In laying down our lives for others, we actually participate in the love of God. We join him in the saving work that he has done from us. Here's my encouragement to you. If you're thinking here tonight, Okay, that sounds good. I struggle to want to serve other people. I want to invite you to pray. 
Maybe it's showing up morning prayer. Maybe it's at a small group. Maybe it's on your own. We often think of prayer as, as like, these are my requests that I bring to God. I want to get something out of God. Uh, th- that's, a, that's a way to pray. Uh, but a whole other concept of prayer is actually praying God's truth into us. I want to invite you this week, the rest of the semester, to pray that you would know the sacrifice of Christ more. And that as you know his sacrifice for you, that it would push you into the lives of other people who desperately need you. What a beautiful thing. What if on the University of Kentucky's campus, more and more people started laying down their lives for other people? That would be an awesome, awesome thing. Jesus invites us to do that because he's done it for you and for me. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, like the disciples, we need to be reminded of who you are. Uh, Lord, we are so prone uh, to treat you like a magic genie. We're prone to teach you, treat you uh, like a distant father that is constantly disappointed with us. Uh, we're tempted to recreate you in our image in all sorts of ways. Father, might we know tonight, whether that's for the first time or for the hundredth time, might we know that tonight you are the Christ. You're the one that has come to rescue your people from sin and death and shame. And Father, I pray uh, that as we get to know you and as we know that truth, that that would push us into the lives of other people, Lord, that, that we would follow you in your sacrificial love for others. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.